Well, this morning, we're going to jump right into our text. So let's open our Bibles to John 11, verses 1 through 5. John 11, verses 1 through 5. I've entitled this message, The Love of Christ. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you that we can come here together and gather in your name, worship you corporately as the body of Christ, the church. Thank you for this time, Father. We thank you for this just amazing time of worship to you, singing with our voices, lifting you up on high, Father, being reminded of who you are being reminded of how we are called to glorify you every moment of the day. Getting a glimpse, just such a small glimpse of what it'll be like in heaven. We thank you for this time. We ask that your word penetrate our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Well, John 11, 1 through 5 says this. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we see that Lazarus here was sick. And this wasn't a run-of-the-mill illness. It wasn't an average cold or flu. But this was serious. It was so serious that Lazarus' two sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. This reveals they had a relationship with Christ. Verse 5 goes on and says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So verse 5 explains that Jesus had a special love for this little family of three. And the word here for love in the Greek is agape, which is beyond just a friendship caring love or a romantic attraction love. But this word agape is a special. It's a higher love that describes delighting in or being committed to. So Jesus here delighted in and was committed to Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. This is the same love, agape, that we see in John 3.16, which says, for God so loved the world, or for God so agaped the world. So the question is, does God agape the whole world? And of course, the answer is what? Yes, because that's what it says here. But the question is, how do we interpret this word for world? 
Because most today seem to interpret the word for world as every single person on earth. But here, world would be better interpreted as God loving the world in general. Because John 12, 19 uses the same word for world as well, which says this. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him, gone after Christ. So we see here that the world was going after Christ, it says in John 12. But obviously we know that not every person went after Christ or followed Christ, right? So in John 3.16, when it says, For God so loved or agape the world, it is saying God's love goes beyond just the Jewish people now. Now his love has spread worldwide through the gospel. It is a love that reaches the ends of the earth. It's not saying that God loves each individual person per se, but that God's love has broke out of the temple, out of the people of Israel. And now God has chosen people all throughout the whole world as his chosen people. But let's say we did conclude that God loves every person with this special agape love being delighted in or committed to every single person, then what would we say about the plain passages that tell us that God doesn't love everyone? For example, Psalm 5.5 says this, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, God, hate all evildoers. Or Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Does the word of God contradict itself? God can't love everyone with this special love and hate them at the same time. This is why it's important that we use clear Scripture to interpret unclear Scripture. And again, in our passage, though, this morning, we see that Jesus had this special love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And this leads to point number one. God delights in his children. Point number one clearly shows that God delights in his children. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 said this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul tells us that God had a special love for us before we were saved. It was this love by the Father that led us to Christ for salvation in the first place. One way we can imagine God delighting in us is how we delight in our own children. And our delighting and loving our children is because we are image bearers of God. It is a reflection of what God does for his children. God has blessed my wife and I with three boys who are interested in everything. They are full of energy. They ask lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of questions that often reminds me of how little I really know as an adult. They ask me questions like, Daddy, why did God create mosquitoes? Or, Daddy, can't the devil repent of his sins too? Or, Daddy, 
will we all speak the same language in heaven? Or, Daddy, can you draw eternity for me on this piece of paper? Or, Daddy, how could Adam and Eve be created perfect and still be tempted to sin? I must admit, if this was Casey or Luke who asked me such questions, I'd probably go get a job elsewhere. But, but, my children, on the other hand, are my pride and joy. They are my delight. I love spending time talking to them and answering every question that comes to their little curious minds. And yet, my love for them is nothing. Let me say that again. My love for them is nothing compared to God's love for us. My love for my children is often tainted. It's mixed with sins like selfishness or anger or fear or pride. And yet God's love for us is a perfect love. And it is a love that is perfectly selfless. It is a love that is perfectly consistent. It is a love that is perfectly constant. It is a love that is perfectly right all the time. God's perfect love has been placed on his children who are his delight and pleasure. Amen? As we think about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this is a love that Christ had for them. I wonder how clear we recognize this agape love God has for us as well. Do we know that God delights in those of us who have repented and turned to Christ in faith. Psalm 147:11 says this, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So Psalm says here that God takes pleasure in, he delights in those of us who are learning to delight in him. He doesn't just tolerate us, church, but he enjoys us. But the next question is, who are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? We know that Christ loved them deeply and that they were in close fellowship with him, but what else can we glean or learn about these close companions of Christ Jesus? Well, the first thing to mention is that this dearly loved family was mentioned in all four of the Gospels. But let's start by looking at Lazarus. I mean, he was raised from the dead. He's probably the most famous out of the three. But what is ironic about Lazarus is that every time he is mentioned in Scripture, he is silent. We don't have one thing said by Lazarus in the Scriptures. He might have been a man of few words. Maybe he had a personality with just not, you know, he's more of a quiet man, right? Or it might be considered that Lazarus did have and lived with two sisters. But I stopped there because I don't want to get myself in trouble. But regardless of not having anything said from Lazarus, we learn that he was a testimony for Christ. He was a walking miracle that screamed out Christ everywhere he went. 
We see this powerful witness of Lazarus for Christ in John 12, 10 and 11. And it says this, The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So many Jews believed in Christ because of Lazarus' testimony, and we see that the chief priests sadly wanted not only to kill Christ, but also they wanted to kill Lazarus as well because he was a walking reminder, a signpost that testified to who Christ was. I mean, can you imagine if you lived back then? That's Lazarus over there. He's the guy who was dead, placed in a tomb, and four days later, Christ raised him from the dead. There he goes, walking. Yeah, that's him. He fell on the sidewalk right there. That's him. Some of us might be thinking, man, I wish I had a testimony like that. I mean, that would really draw people to Christ. If I could say that Jesus raised me from the grave, right? I mean, what if you could say... I was buried in Mark Weiland Cemetery. And Jesus said, Terry, wake up. And then I rose from the grave. And then many turned to Christ because of my testimony. That would be really easy, right? But being raised from the grave is an extreme example, right? So maybe just being cured of terminal cancer or walking when paralyzed or blind and receiving sight, something that would be deemed a modern-day miracle where doctors themselves are astonished and can't explain how this terminal situation led to a full recovery. I mean, what a great testimony we would be able to share with others if that happened to us, right? But honestly... We really don't need a miraculous healing to have a great testimony because we have something greater. We have something more astonishing. Something far more unbelievable. Which leads to point number two. Christ brought us back to life spiritually. Point number two says that Christ brought us back to life spiritually. Ephesians 2 1 through 3 says this. This is Paul talking to the church at Ephesus, and he says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were, church. We were in really bad shape. We were running away from God, living for ourselves, controlled by Satan under the wrath of God. And ultimately dead spiritually, which means we were dead to God. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. But, praise God for verse 4 in Ephesians 2. 
which goes on and says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. Amen. Christ took our lifeless bodies, full of darkness, riddled with sin, and brought us back from the dead. God showered his grace on us, cleansed us from all our sinfulness, and raised us up with Christ. This is what happened to each one of us who have repented and turned to Christ. We all have a testimony, a miraculous testimony, that far exceeds being physically healed. I wonder if we realize what a miracle it is that we were dead and then Christ raised us from the dead spiritually, raised us to life. Well, as Lazarus was walking testimony for Christ, I wonder this morning if we are a walking testimony for Christ as well. Do people see Christ when they see us? Do people see Christ when they get to know us? Well, looking back at John 11, we also have two sisters who were dearly loved by Christ as well. So I want to focus first on Martha, who we find in the Gospel of Luke. So why don't we all turn there. Turn with me to Luke 10, and we're going to go to verses 38 through 42. So Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. says this. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. So Jesus goes to Bethany and visits the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And we see that Martha invites Christ in and is serving frantically, right? While Mary just sits at the feet of Christ and listens to him. And Martha becomes irritated because she's doing all the serving. She's doing all the work while Mary just relaxes with Christ, right? So Martha, being annoyed, decides to reveal what is inside her heart. Verse 40 says again, But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. I mean, here I'm slaving over the meal, continuing to keep drinks filled. And Christ, don't you see how I am taken advantage of by my sister Mary? I mean, don't you care at all about me, Jesus? The question is, what is Martha doing when she confronts Christ like this? Have you ever thought about that? And the answer is, she is trying to manipulate Christ she is trying to guilt trip the Son of God. And if it wasn't, if it, if it even got worse than that, because then she decides to tell Christ what he needs to do, right? 
Martha says, then tell her, that's Mary, to help me. I guess we can say that Martha wasn't shy, right? I mean, she is direct and confrontational with our Lord and Savior. It seems Martha feels like she is being taken advantage of. She may even feel jealous that Mary is getting all the time with Jesus while she has to do all the work. I wonder, I wonder who Martha was focused on. Who is she worried about? Let's think about that for a second. Is she thinking about Christ, who has been traveling many days and was probably tired from his long journey? Or is Martha thinking about her sister, who is listening and learning from Christ? And of course, the answer is no, right? Who is she focused on? Herself, right? Her gift of service has turned inward instead of outward. How does Christ respond to the mix of pride and selfishness coming out of Martha's heart at this moment? Verse 41, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Jesus lovingly, lovingly points out that Martha is struggling with a lot of issues. She has a battle going on inside. Her mind is divided. She is not, she isn't focused on Christ, but on herself, and this leads to all sorts of problems, Christ says. I wonder if we have the gift of service like Martha this morning. If so, I would ask us, are we practicing our gift for God's glory? Or are we serving others because it makes us feel good? Or because we want people to think highly of us? Well, Christ counseled Martha, and let me say that Christ still counsels us today. You may be thinking, I haven't gotten some one-on-one counseling sessions with Christ like Martha did, right? I mean, Jesus came over to visit with Martha and Mary, but I don't think after service Christ is coming over your house for lunch. Can you imagine? Honey, who did you invite over for after church? Oh, Jesus. Right? Well, if you told me Christ was coming over, well, you may need more than just counseling. But this leads to point number three. Jesus continues to counsel us today by giving us the counselor. Point number three says Jesus continues to counsel us today by giving us the counselor. John 16, 7 says this. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is talking to his disciples here, and he says something alarming. He tells them that it is better to go, right? It's better to have the helper, the advocate, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, than keep Christ on earth. Jesus gives us more insight on this just a few verses down by saying in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So in essence, we see that the Holy Spirit living inside of us is like Christ being with us 24 hours a day. The Holy Spirit is working on us, giving us the same counsel that Christ gave when he was on this earth. But we see that the Holy Spirit not only guides us, but he is transforming us into the likeness of Christ Jesus himself. A familiar passage that many of you know, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what we get with the Holy Spirit living inside of us. He produces fruit in us. He gives us new ways of acting and behaving because he is transforming us from the inside out. Amen? And we have to remember that it is the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. We don't just grow in peace and not in love. Or we don't just grow in kindness but not in joy. The Holy Spirit grows us in all of them because it is one fruit. It's one fruit. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, etc. are a part of the same fruit. Do we recognize that having the Holy Spirit indwelling us is like being with Christ 24 hours a day? Another question is, are we listening to the counsel the Holy Spirit is giving us? We must remember that the Holy Spirit's leading is usually not found in a warm, fuzzy feeling or good vibes or positive thinking, but we find that the Holy Spirit's counsel is usually centered on God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. But the final character discussed in John 11 is Mary. Mary. And it says in John 11, too, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. We also see Mary in Luke 10:39 which says, "And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings." John 11:32. If we went a little further ahead in our passages, it says, "Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet." I wonder if we are starting to see a pattern with Mary. In each passage, Mary is focused on Christ. She is centered on Christ. She is passionate about Christ. She sits at the feet of Christ. Are we like Mary? Do we have our sights, our aim, our goals, our passions, our desires, our energy, our mind, our thoughts, our actions, our life, centered on Christ. Mary isn't just learning for learning's sake, but she is submitted to Christ. It's one thing to learn from Christ, to glean knowledge for yourself, but it's another thing altogether to submit yourself wholly at the feet of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that Mary looked at Jesus as her Lord and Savior. Christ is a place of solace for Mary. Christ is a place of comfort for Mary. 
We can see there is no other place she would rather be than at the feet of Jesus. Mary knew she was hopeless, that she was lost, that she was dead without Christ. But this leads to point number four. Point number four says, we sit at the feet of Jesus in awe and humility. Point number four says, we sit at the feet of Jesus in awe and humility. We recognize that Christ is God, that he is master over all, and we see the reality of who we are. We see the moments we lose our temper, or the times that we think terrible thoughts, or the times where we let fear overrun us, or the lack of prayer life that we have, or continued battle with selfishness, and it shows us that we have a long way to go until we are made in the image of Christ. And what's really sobering is to know that without Christ, the scriptures teach us that we are nothing. We are absolutely worthless without Christ, but worse because Christ, without Christ, we are under the wrath of God still, dead spiritually. And going back to point number two, though, Christ brought us back to life spiritually. So now, like Mary, we revel. Now, like Mary, we get excited. Now, like Mary, we find our fulfillment, our joy, our hope in the life of Christ Jesus. I wonder this morning if we know what it looks like to humble ourselves before God. To sit at the feet of Christ if we are willing to submit to whatever God says. But the question is, where do we learn what God says? And again, in God's word, right? Scripture calls us to love God with all our hearts. Scripture calls the husband to lead his wife spiritually. Scripture calls the wife to follow her husband. Scripture calls the father to spend time in the word, teaching the family, training the children how to pray. Scripture calls the mother to train her children in the admonition of the Lord. These are commands found in God's word. How we obey and follow clear truths in Scripture reveals how submitted we are to Christ like Mary. To end, I want to just look back at John eleven four, a passage that we skipped over. John eleven four says this: This illness, this is talking about Lazarus. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus tells the disciples that Lazarus' illness will not lead to death, but to the glory of God. And I'm just going to give you two quick takeaways here on this passage. Number one, God uses illness and death for his own glory. Number one says God uses illness and death for his own glory. Christ knows Lazarus is sick, and he does not heal him, but allows him to die. And Jesus says it is for the glory of God that this happens. It's just bad theology, wrong teachings to assume that sickness means Satan has hijacked God's sovereignty. God uses even our sin to grow us. And here we see that he uses sickness and finally death to magnify and glorify Christ. Second takeaway. 
God the Father is glorified when God the Son is glorified. The second takeaway is God the Father is glorified when God the Son is glorified. The Trinity is not in competition with each other. They work perfectly in unison with one another. When the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. When the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified. We get a glimpse of perfect, selfless love when we see the Trinity at work. And we reflect this Trinitarian relationship when we place one another above ourselves in the body of Christ called the church. Well, in conclusion, Christ loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus deeply. This love was not just in feeling, but in action as he was committed to them. He delighted in them, the scripture says. Although they were very different, different in personality, strengths, different in weaknesses, even maturity and faith. Yet Christ loved each of them, delighted in them. And similarly with us, we aren't like we all, all, all aren't like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. Some of us may be more like Lazarus who witness with less words. Or maybe like Martha with the gift of service and hospitality. Or maybe more like Mary who just sits at the feet of Christ. God delights in the fact that we are all different with varying gifts and abilities. And he delights and finds pleasure in us when we use those gifts and abilities for his glory for his honor. May we, as a church, spend our energy, our time, our gifts, our abilities, our thinking, our actions, all motivated from our delight for Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for how deep your love is for us, how committed you are to us to the point that you sent your son to earth to die and be sacrificed for your children, Father. We thank you for such a deep love that you have. Help us, Father, to continue to be led by your spirit and have that same depth, agape love for our families, for our church families, even for our enemies, Father. Help us to love and serve others like you've done for us. We thank you for your truths in Scripture. We ask that we, you be glorified in what we've heard today and help us to live those truths out for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.